free dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, free drop. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. It made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. Hello, folks. The PGA Championship is done and dusted. This is Sean Zock. This is the drop zone. He is Dylan DeChair. He's also in Rochester. Dylan, it's late there. It's coming up on midnight. Uh, but we're not in the same room, which is a rarity at these major championships. Where are you right now? How are you feeling? I'm in the den of our rental house, and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling, you know, I guess still feeling some buzz from a resounding Brooks Kepka major championship win. Maybe still the buzz from watching one of the strangest scenes I've ever witnessed in PGA Tour coverage, which is uh, Michael Block's ball landing in the hole. Did you on the see 15th. it happen? Yes, what? saw it happen, but like like some spectators, was a bit confused. I was standing on the tee with those guys, and, you know, well, we can get to this in the in the block party section of the podcast, but, yeah, there was a little bit of a lag time between, like, all right, the ball's landing, and then, like, Oh, all right. Well, it looked like it was right in line. Where'd it go? And it actually just went in. So <laughs> that was cool. I still feel energized. I will not feel energized when I wake up in four hours for my flight home. Mm, but right. for now, happy to be here. All right. Well, we got a fun rundown. Uh, we're going to go through everything. Brooks, Victor, Rory, Michael Block, Phil, Bryson, Scotty, Oak Hill, Broke Hill, will kill everything you got. Um, but let's start with the man up top. Brooks Kepka. Uh, he wins by two. He wins his fifth major. He wins his third PGA championship. I'm jealous that you got to see it. I've been waiting for Brooks' next major, and I thought it was coming at Augusta. I was hanging out with members of his team on Sunday at Augusta, and it just didn't happen that week. He got chased by John Rahm, and something slipped. Um, and it sounds like something that night flipped in his mind. Like, this is what I did wrong at the Masters. This is why I lost. He internalized it, and he really wouldn't tell anybody what he did wrong, what he realized. You asked him early in the beginning of the week, before any shots were hit, can you share a little bit of detail, Brooks, about, like, what you learned? <laughs> and he wouldn't share, um, but he basically shared uh he shared it all by going out and winning this tournament by two so um where do you begin with brooks what do you think he learned what like what what are we what is our takeaway from this major being different than all of his other majors i think reading between the lines and hearing what his his coach pete cowan had to say and hearing what ricky elliott his caddy had to say and then kind of just making sense of what Brooks himself was saying. I think the, I think what he learned from the masters was that he had to go get it. He had to go win it. He couldn't try not to lose it. And that meant just a more active, aggressive mindset, which is how he plays so well in these things to begin with. And I think the key is that that is active and aggressive, but it is still uh, conservative in its targets. I guess it's, Brooks picking his spots to fire at flags. And today there were more opportunities to fire at flags than other days at this golf course this week. Um, but God, he came out of the gates hot. And I mean, you know, you could imagine Brooks learning good mental lessons from the masters, but then, you know, his swing or his, you know, body or something wouldn't feel good enough to put them into play or putts wouldn't go in or something like that. But in this case, he hit an approach shot at number two to four feet. And then he hit his tee shot on the par three third to four feet. And then he got up and down from 90 yards on, on uh, whatever, number four. So he had three birdies in the first four holes. And it was like, okay, if the key was being aggressive and getting off to a hot start mission freaking accomplished because there's no more of a, no stronger statement that I can remember than that one coming out of uh coming out of the gates with the lead on a Sunday. Yeah, I there's something different between John Rahm and Victor Hovland. I remember saying that 
Last night I was at a wedding in uh, Wisconsin. I remember talking to people about this last night. And there's just there's a pretty big gap. And I don't think Victor Hovland wants to admit how big the gap is between him and John Rahm. But what just the threat that he um, is perceived as in Brooks's mind, I think at the Masters, I think Brooks knew that Rahm has actually played better golf than me through about three rounds. He had actually played better golf than Brooks, and he just wouldn't score uh, through the bad wave. And I think Brooks just kind of felt like Rahm was inevitable. There's nothing inevitable to Victor Hovland. He's a great player, a great driver, a very good ball striker. Um, but Victor did not scare Brooks in any way. And even though he got close, he hovered around one stroke for a lot of today, it still didn't feel like Victor was ever going to do it. Hovered. Yeah. Right? Never really felt like he was going to do it. When you were looking down that leaderboard, I think more people were like, can Scotty Scheffler maybe do this instead of Hovland? That's what it felt like to me. Are we are we on to Hovland? No, not at all. We're, we're we, on. Have we moved past Brooks? I, okay. I just want to know, or I want people to understand that when you compare these first two majors of the 2023 season, one was Brooks backing up to Rom and Rom taking it from him. The other just wasn't going like Brooks wasn't going to back up as much today as he was at Augusta in April because the threat of someone behind him stealing it from him just doesn't quite exist as much. Um, I think. Sure. I think. Yeah, yeah. And it, until you've done it and proven it, like John Rom has. It's just going to be different. Maybe it's like Tiger being in the same group as Tony Finau at the 2019 Masters. It's like, yeah, this guy's a hell of a player. You know he's capable of any sort of run, but he hasn't You don't even it. have to think about that, so dude. It, think about 2020 PGA Championship at Harding Park. Third round leader, Brooks Kepka is analyzing the leaderboard. This is our man, and he looks at the leaderboard, and he's like, I don't see a whole lot of many people up there that are major champions. DJ's only got one, he said in that moment. Brooks analyzes who are my freaking threats here. What is Victor Hovland yeah. but another stepping stone on Brooks Kepka's path to a major championship? That did not exist in the same way at Augusta National. And so that's the difference between these two majors for me. Well, the only thing I would add to that is that when Brooks did that particular analysis, I think he finished T29. <laughs> like, that was an implosion. That was the beginning, or or at least partly the beginning of, like, wait a minute, what is going on with this guy in final rounds of majors? I mean, he did a whole bunch of contending without winning after he won the PGA in 2019. Uh, finished runner-up at the U.S. Open, finished, you know, racked up a, a half dozen top four or five finishes in the couple years that followed two years ago, very eventful week Brooks versus Bryson really launched the whole eye roll video happened. Brooks also lost to Phil Mickelson in the final group. It just wasn't the same guy on Sundays. And I, I think there's two parts to that. First, we saw the Brooks that maybe wasn't the closer that he had been those first four times around. And then we saw Brooks that was injured, that was low on confidence, that was feeling doubt creep in. And, you know, Netflix helped show exactly what that low side to him looked like and felt like. And I think that was actually helpful. Um, but, yeah, once the health came back, the confidence quickly seems to have come back with it. And the aggressive mindset he took into today was was pretty impressive and and no one could quite hang with him but yeah i mean we'll talk about hovland in a second but yeah no one could take him all the way to the finish line it doesn't make sense on uh visually when you watch it happen when you you've seen you went to the you were there at beth page for his win you were there at shinnecock for his win you were there at bell reeve Bell Reeve, yeah. Um, it doesn't make sense until it's like obvious, like, oh, yeah, he's just going to win again. And I guess what I mean when it doesn't make sense is like it's hard to point to one thing that he does that Rory McIlroy isn't doing. It's hard to point to one thing that like Brooks Kepka is doing during these weeks that uh, Spieth can't do, 
during major weeks with consistency that leads to all these top five finishes. Um, but I think there are moments on Sunday that actually show themselves. Like when he makes the 10-foot par saver on 13, right? Like when he makes the uh, the par from off the green or the birdie from off the green on the back nine. Brooks just makes more six-foot putts, eight-foot putts, 10-foot putts for par, for bogey. He, he understands. He said in his post-round presser today, you know what? Maybe the most important shot for me this week is when I chipped in on 11 in the first round because it kept me from making double bogey. And basically, if you make double bogey, you just don't win major championships. Like He does the little things that keep big numbers off the scorecard that when you look around and everyone is so perplexed about why Rory McIlroy can't win a major, he doesn't make enough 10-foot par savers. He doesn't save himself from the implosion double bogey. He isn't chipping in enough in the way that Brooks Kepka did. Like, it's all those things that add up to what? Rory lost to Brooks this week by seven shots. And how many times in the past five years has he lost to Brooks by five to seven shots in majors? Like, that's the difference. It's hard to point to it on paper, but it exists out there, and that's why it doesn't make sense to me. I think the one thing that does make sense is distance control. This is something that Tiger had to the nines when he was playing his best golf. Look, you can miss left and right, but if you're not missing long and short, that's going to save you a lot of headaches. And I mean, if you just look at obviously the first few holes where he's stuffing it, he's hitting it the correct distance. But yeah, number 10, he has 143 yards to the hole. His approach shot goes 141 yards. Like coming down the stretch i mean his his driver on 14 the holes 320 yards his drive went 319 yards uh 15 yeah he hit it a little bit left but it's 151 yard hole he hit the ball 153 yards all the way to yeah i mean 16 exact same thing he had four feet for birdie 18 when he just can't make double bogey he goes a little above and beyond he has 178 yards in he hits it 178 yards. He has nine and a half feet left for birdie. It's just a way of squeezing the life out of the rest of the field. And it's not that he didn't make mistakes and not that he didn't make bogeys, but I mean, the, the when he does have command of his golf ball and when he did today, it just felt, I mean, it felt inevitable. It felt like it felt so similar to how it felt a few years ago. That's what's weird. You would think, oh, this is a this is a new guy. This is a different era. Like Tiger in 2019, sure there were similarities to when he'd won a decade before, but yeah, it was also a new guy. And I know this time gap is not as long, but I don't know. Don't you think don't you think this seemed a lot like the same guy? Yeah that we saw a few years ago, not like a, not a 2.0. Yes, totally. Nine bogeys all week long. Nine, you know, you, you run around the front nine, four times and the back nine, four times. And you basically average a bogey on each of those nines that you play throughout this week. That, that is such controlled golf that is avoiding hell. And, um, it doesn't come in bunches, which is, that's what the old Brooks Kepka kind of felt like too. It's like, now I'm just gonna I'm gonna take what comes to me. I am not going to start a PGA Championship sprinting at 90 miles an hour. I am going to ease into it, right? Like he shot 72 on day one and was not happy, but basically said like I'm actually playing all right. That was about as bad as I really felt like I could shoot, and it's a 72. <laughs> it's not the four under that Bryson shot but it's just fine. It's six strokes off the pace. He started on Friday, nine straight pars. That's just fine. Cruising along, and then he kind of catches his speed, hits or makes nine, uh, five birdies on the back nine that day, and that was the only time that was like in bunches for Brooks all week long. It just never comes in these spurts, but he just kind of makes sure that you see his name slowly moving a couple pegs up a leaderboard. It's like... When we're looking at it, it's like, okay, we're, we're focused on Bryson for the first 18 holes. And then we're kind of focused on Corey Connors for the next 18 holes. And then slowly but surely, Kepka goes from, like, 
you had to scroll a couple pages to you don't have to scroll anymore. Oh shit, he's hunting me. You think Corey Connors was thinking about like anybody but Brooks Kepka? No, he might have been thinking about himself and one other guy. Brooks Kepka is coming after me on the leaderboard here. And uh yeah, it's so clinical that it's it's honestly just damn impressive and uh like I said, it just doesn't make sense to me because um because he doesn't win everywhere else. He's never won everywhere in his career. And guys who win five major championships win all over the globe. They just do. They just, if you amass that amount of winning at the highest level, the hardest courses, the biggest tournaments with the biggest fields, you just do it everywhere on the planet. And maybe that's what we're going to see him do between age 35 and, or 33 and 35 and 37. Maybe he'll, Maybe he'll be the guy who just rolls all over live golfers. Um, but it's just his career doesn't make sense. And I'm almost just have to kind of like sit back and be impressed by it. Totally. I mean, he's, he's the one guy that just completely defies like statistical prediction. Data golf has always struggled to price him properly because how do you, how do you build into a model the fact that a guy is only going to show up for the biggest tournaments? And now he's won a couple live events. Uh, and obviously he won some big PGA tour events, but yeah, he's just a completely different human being these major weeks. And he doesn't care about winning live events though. He has made that clear. No, he likes winning. He's made that clear, (laughs) but he doesn't really care about winning. He cares about reps for the next major. The next live event, he thinks yeah. about what it's going to do for him at the U.S. Open. And uh, it's almost the – I think it's the most perfect winner for our current state of pro golf. He is – he's got his full body inside the door at live golf, but the door is ajar to kind of the rest of the world. And he doesn't want to be a live stand. But he is a live stand. He's signed a contract with them. He has to play events for them. He's going to get asked questions about them. But he doesn't have to wear the live logos. You know, he is the perfect winner for right now. He doesn't now. wear the live logo. Yeah, I think, the, I think the sense is like, look, I'm doing what I signed up for. If you want me to do more, you're going to have to somehow, you know, if it's not in the contract, I'm probably not doing it. I mean, it's pretty explicit. I definitely think it helps live, he said, but I'm more interested in my own self right now, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a huge thing for live, but at the same time, I'm out here competing as an individual at the PGA Championship. I'm just happy to take this home for the third time. Like this, if if maybe Bryson, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of who, if Thomas Peters wins this, if uh, Taylor Gooch wins this, it feels like a win for Liv. This feels like a win for Brooks Kepka because he has never gone so far as to throw his lot in directly with Liv itself. He's the only player on that Liv roster that would say things like he did in a bit of a stiff arm way against his employer right now. Like I know, like, look, I'm I'm doing me during these weeks. Ask me about live next week when I'm in D.C. at the next one. Um, so will he be parading the Wanamaker Trophy around live events? I don't anticipate that happening. Will live want that? 1,000%. Do we need to add an addendum to the contract? Perhaps. We'll leave that up to Blake Smith, his agent. Um, if Phil Mickelson won this major championship, you better believe that Phil would be parading. He would be planning a literal parade at a live golf event. So it is the perfect winner. He is, he is as close to the center of this war as possible. And he will continue to be when we continue to talk about his potential to be a Ryder cup player. We can say that for another day though. Let's keep running down the leaderboard to, uh, the two runner ups, man, Victor Hovland, you spent a bunch of time with Vic recently and, uh, you probably were tickled at the idea of him winning and having a lot of access into what he's been thinking about recently. Um, but like I said earlier, I just don't think he took it a long way. He took it further than he's taken his other recent major contention, but I don't think anyone really thought Victor's going to win today. Is that fair? Am I like glossing over how close he was to getting this done? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a moment on the 13th green today where Victor pours in a birdie putt and Kepka still has 10 feet for par. And if he doesn't make it, then they're tied at seven under all of a sudden. And that felt like, hold on a minute. I mean, at that point, yeah, Brooks has gotten off to this hot start, but he also bogeyed six and seven. He bogeyed 11. He's hit a couple, uh, well, mostly just the tee shot at six really suggested like, whoa, there's a couple big misses lurking here. So at that point, the result definitely felt in question. Um, it still felt like the tournament hung in the balance until this moment that I was just writing about in my recap from today, which was Victor standing in the fairway bunker at 16, sizing up his shot. His ball didn't look like it was sitting great. He pulled out nine iron. There was a giant lip in front of him. I actually still don't know in person. I was kind of right behind him and looking where the ball ended up. was like, he must've thinned that he must have just sculled that thing it didn't look as obvious in the replay because a bunch of sand did kick up but it was not even close to clearing the lip it embedded in the wall I mean that combined with then Brooks just stiffing it to four feet um, was a pretty unceremonious ending three shot swing on the 16th hole um yeah, I was happy that Victor made that putt on 18 because it felt appropriate that he would at least be a runner-up in this event based on how he played. But, you know, I mean, it was pretty easy to read his body language after. He was uh, he had to wait five or six minutes for CBS to toss to a one-question interview that he did with Dottie. And I think after that, he was like, yeah, look, guys, I'll take questions, but, you know, I'm not going to. There are a ton of stations set up looking to interview players. He was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go talk to the press. I'll face some questions. Not looking to hide from anything, but after that, I'm out of here. Um, so I think he was pretty bummed, and I get why. He missed four putts this week between five and seven feet, and Brooks Kepka missed one. That was inside of seven feet all week. Like it's just that's the kind of stuff I was talking about earlier. Is there's just these little things that Kepka has always done during these majors that everyone else is trying to do. Everyone's trying to replicate and just not everyone can do. But I thought he had a lot of good putts today and I was impressed that he hung around for whatever, sixteen holes. I thought his short game I was really impressive under the gun because it is a much maligned part of his game. I mean, I went to all of his press availability this week, and in, I think in every one, someone was like, hey, can you talk about your chipping? <laughs> uh, because he is famously not a good chipper. Today he was excellent. This felt so different than his showing in the final pairing at St. Andrews last year. It felt different from uh, his showing at the Masters this year. This felt like he really rose to the occasion. I mean, he was three under through 14, three under through 15, I guess, was going toe-to-toe with Kepka. They really basically hit the same tee shot on 16 also. Brooks has yeah. carried the bunker. Hovland's didn't. And uh, it's it's just a fine margins, man. Fine margins. But I don't know. I mean, this feels like a step in the right direction for Victor. Would you agree? Yeah, it feels like a step. The The funny thing about major championship golf is like if there are, let's say there are, let's say there are seven steps to winning a major. And he has, through the process of St. Andrews at the Open last year and Augusta for the Masters this year, he's gotten up to like the last step. And no one ever tells you how to take that last step, or no one ever guarantees that you will take that last step. Um, some people bound up the steps, kind of what Brooks Kepka did at Aaron Hills in 2017. He bounded up the steps and then suddenly was like really confident on the top step. Like Hovland is, is at, he's knocking on the door, but that doesn't mean the door will ever open. Ricky Fowler was knocking on the door nine years ago. Top five player in the world and finishing top five in all the majors. And we're like, gosh, that guy's going to do it. He's going to do it soon. He didn't do it. <laughs> like just about the same, yeah. the same upbringing in, in many ways in the golf world that Victor has had Oklahoma state, like amateur success. And it doesn't always happen. So I just, I know that that's kind of a harsh 
reality to, to drop on him during another really good finish. But that stuff exists. You've got to keep it in the back of your mind because weird stuff happens in golf. I was trying to think if the roles were reversed, how Kepka would have played that shot. And mm. I, I'm curious, you know, what the kind of post round analysis was on, on live from, et cetera, et cetera. But from standing there, my first thought when getting there was like, I don't think he can really full on try to get it all the way there. And I wonder if there's a play that you could make because the lie was weird because that lip is so high. Maybe if he's more confident in getting it up and down from 30 yards, then he just hits a, you know, sand wedge or pitching wedge or whatever it is that would take that lip completely out of play and, and not even worry about it and essentially lay it up and say, look, 17 and 18, a lot of different things can happen. Let's, you know, see if we can make par and then get out of here. Um, I don't, and I only say that because early in the week he was asked, Hey, why is it that you haven't played well? Why, why didn't you play well in majors until the last two? And he said, well, look, I was young and stupid and I did young, stupid things. And, uh, I, I just thought maybe this was a little bit of that impulsiveness creeping in just at the very end. Is it a bad shot? Did he just hit a thin shot? Like. Can it be explained away know. in that sense? Would Brooks didn't really, would, would Brooks Kepka sort of have gotten under the golf say, ball? Uh, I think. Well, I guess that's part of it. Is you have to know that you can't miss that shot thin. You can't. You can chunk it. That's fine. Chunk it. Leave it short. Try to get up and down. Like that is the miss. Um, but to just kind of blade it into the wall, which I think is what happened, mm-hmm. it's not good. All right. Uh, hit- nice up and down on 17, though, <laughs> and nice birdie on 18. Yeah. Uh, he finished tied with Scott Scheffler, um, number one player in the world again, Scotty Scheffler, who seriously can't putt. I didn't realize that. Yep. Um, Scotty's insane. He's truly, truly insane. Um, this is his. 14th straight top 12 finish you would have bet on him through 36 holes that he is for sure going to win this tournament he might even run away with it um but he didn't something caught him in the third round something caught him in the rain the weird conditions for that round putted very poorly that round of all the people who made the cut um near the bottom end and that's been his undoing i just don't know I just don't know what it was different about this Scheffler performance than kind of what he's been lately. He He's one of the best tee to green players in the world, and he is not a good putter. And you don't beat major champion Brooks Kepka when that's the case. Or, like, you really have to be somehow impest, like, impossibly great with your irons to beat major champion Brooks Kepka at that point. So, um, what do you have to say about Scotty? Just a silent 65 today from my perspective. I mean, I, I I was following that final group, but I was also trying to see the groups around them. Um, I mean, he, he, you know, he made six birdies. He only made one bogey, and even that bogey, he had a pretty good look for par. So it really was an excellent round, but I guess that it took a little while to get going. He just parred the first six holes, and by that point, Kepka had already pulled away a little bit so it never really felt like this was scotty's tournament to win uh you know he got he got closer after birdies at 13 and 14 and then when he birdied 18 suddenly it was like okay brooks can't fully implode here if he bogeys 17 then he if he doubles 18 then there's a playoff so yeah he re-entered the conversation there but mostly i i just felt like he birdied the holes he was supposed to birdie on the back nine in like 10 was playing short 13 and 14 were birdie holes but then he had tossed in a birdie at seven which was basically playing like a par five and then another at eight which is a tough hole so i don't know he I mean, he's just hitting it so good he looks really frustrated over short putts because he he kind of keeps missing ones that he really wants for the most part I, he was if you throw out the front nine on saturday 
which you notably cannot do. <laughs> he was the best golfer in the field, mm-hmm. but he bogeyed four of his first seven holes in the rain on Saturday. Clearly didn't get comfortable there. Um, and that was the outlier. That was the difference. Yeah. It's, it's getting to a point where, Hey, our major championship season's halfway over. Scotty, you won yourself a players this year, but you know he's at the point where he will be upset if he doesn't win a major this year. <laughs> and he was one of the best tee to green players in the field at the first two majors of the year, and everything has unraveled for him on the putting green. And that is almost the most infuriating aspect of pro golf is that players know I can control so much, and sometimes there's a lot of luck that happens on the greens, but if I can't leave it to luck... If I can't take care of like what I'm doing on the greens and allow uh, luck to help me out, then I'm leaving something out there to be desired. And that's what he's doing right now. So it's uh... <laughs> these guys just put it so good. Like they put so well, everyone on tour. And if you start missing short putts, it's really going to stand out because it's it's almost a full shot you're giving away anytime you miss something outside of four feet. All right. Inside of five feet, I should say. Sure. Inside of six feet. Um, all right. The, Whatever. The second story of the week, we've spent a lot of time on Vic, a little time on Scotty. The real second story of the week behind Champion was Michael Block, a guy who I believe was over par on Thursday when he put one of these little AirPods in his ear and started winning everybody over. He talked to Scott Van Pelt about his odds about getting up and down from the greenside bunker on 14, and it looked like, yeah, you might not make the cut. We got to get him on the phone. We got to get him on the mic right now. He wants to do this because he might not be playing on the weekend. And, I mean, I don't even know how you summarize his week other than played the week of his life, the best golf of his life, um, shot 70, 70, 70, 71, but was so much so much more than that. He became the mascot, I think, of the tournament, right? Yeah. And sometimes you wonder, like, all right, is this stuff just happening online? But my God, I walked up the 14th or number 13 with Block and Rory today and had for the first time this thought of, like, oh, my God, Michael Block is going to have to quiet down the crowd (laughs) so that Rory can play. Like, they were just shouting everyone was like on their feet basically it was a whole sensation and it's funny because from the media perspective you almost are like all right this dude is doing a lot of interviews (laughs) um there starts to uh, because the pga like i mentioned before there are a lot of stations set up i think i'm not exaggerating when i say after his saturday round i think michael block probably did nine separate stations of interviews and uh He did another interview before Sunday's round. Somehow this dude just kept staying in front of very, very good, capable golfers. Like he was talking to Scott Van Pelt and then what stuffed his approach shot during that first interview. He uh, made another birdie when he was on, when he was mic'd up on Saturday. I mean, it just seemed like the more he started talking about how surreal it was, the more it stayed surreal. And he said, look, if I just shoot even par all four days, I'm going to end up in a really good spot. I think I could finish in the top 10. He was one shot off. If he had finished even, he would have been T12. But then it's just so insane. It was literally was made up. We were joking that like, yeah, the fix was in, that that hole in one didn't actually happen. But like Sunday, this dude did not, he didn't make a birdie. He didn't make a single birdie all day. He made three bogeys. He made 14 pars and he made a hole in one, <laughs> flew in the hole at the 15th and sent people into a frenzy. There was like beer flying everywhere. People were going nuts. Of anyone to make an ace, the fact that it was this dude defies belief. Yeah. Uh, and I heard he made a sick up and down on 18 also. I just didn't see it. He did. Um, short left um, and short-sided left, and it was uh, it was great. And then he kind of he made the putt. The putt kind of fell in the side door. He just put his hands on his knees and like bowed at his hips and just like sh- was shaking his head. Like, are you are you kidding me? I think that was what uh, made him so heartwarming in a sense. Was just his belief was kind of defied too. Um, he. 
he kept saying like, well, when when he made the ace, he didn't realize that it went in. Um, he was like, wait, really? And he, and he kind of spent the week doing things like that. You know, he got emotional when he was told, hey, you're beating John Rahm, like the best golfer on the planet. How does that make you feel? He got emotional when he found out, oh, yeah, you're playing tomorrow with Rory McIlroy. How does that feel? He got extremely emotional after the round uh, when he sees videos of his club members back home in Southern California freaking out watching him from afar. So it was a week of emotions for him. Did it get overplayed? Look, if we have to put it on the... I think it's all good. <laughs> yeah, if, if we yeah. have to put it on the spectrum but. from underplayed to overplayed, for sure it got overplayed. But you know who else was there? Like no other PGA champions were, uh, or PGA club pros were doing this. No one has done it in the last, you know, couple decades. Has has like reached this level uh, within this tournament. So why not? You're gonna play it. We're gonna overplay it to death. We're gonna overplay it next year when he's teeing off at Valhalla as a member of the field. So why not just let it ride? Uh, this is this is what the PGA Championship's all about. This is their identity, right? We always talk about this major needing an identity. This can be part of that. Let them have it. Just beating the hell out of all these full-time golfers that was the the only part where you know some of these guys getting asked about him i think a couple times there were probably some bruised egos of even john Rahm when they brought him on cbs to uh help commentate during the fourth round he was only half jokingly like i can't believe how many shots he's beating me by <laughs> so yeah there's an element. If I were Michael Block, I would now say, look, this has been unreal. I'm going to, yes, I will accept sponsors exemptions, but I am afraid of overexposure. I am not doing any interviews until, I don't know, Friday or something. Mm. But that's not how the internet works. Nope. The content gods are thirsty, and uh, he will probably continue to be obliging. You know who's deeply aware of how the internet works? Rory, Rory McIlroy. Yes, uh, we're going to pivot to Rory here. I don't know if I have a question about Rory. Um, I went into the week. I did a fantasy draft with some buddies. Four of us. We each make four picks. I mean, 16. No one drafted Rory. No one wanted a piece of sad boy Rory who was kind of shutting. In 16 picks? <laughs> yes. Um, in... I think the reason was, look, he's been a weird little roller coaster of himself, and he kind of continued it earlier in the week with his presser just being like, look, I'm, we're keeping this thing real low energy. We're keeping this thing like low expectations. I, I don't even, you know, he, he was admitting to not feeling that well on Thursday. Um, he was under the weather a little bit, and he, he, he properly kept expectations low, but then somehow you know, beat those expectations, finishes in the top 10. What, what were you surprised or uh, what was your takeaway about Rory's week? Because it was, it was a weird one. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it was This is your chance. Holy unsurprising. This is your chance, right? Dylan. Last week I asked you, I, I made you sound like you're the Rory sympathizer, and I wasn't there for any of this. So this yeah. is your chance to to set the set the record straight on what Rory's week was really like on the grounds compared to the people who are reading and, and chiming in online. The difference is that he just made a ton of mistakes. I am curious where his 16 birdies for the week ranks, but it's got to be pretty high up there. Um, there's just, there's just too many sloppy shots. He says he doesn't feel comfortable over the ball right now. And so, you know, I guess that's, that's certainly doesn't sound like a good thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's a similar, but different to what we saw from Rory at last year's majors, I guess, and mostly similar. It's like, if he looks back at today's round, there are a whole lot of ways that he gets in the mix. I mean, he finished, what, at two under in the end? Uh, he made three bogeys in the first six or seven holes, and almost nobody else in those final groups, you know, made more than two at least. So the good was plenty good enough. It's just, it's just sloppy. 
And it's it was sloppy at the Masters where things, once they started going wrong, really went wrong. It was sloppy at Quail Hollow or, you know, same type of deal. Here it was a lot, a lot tighter. And I think his mindset seemed like, seemed helpful. But now it wasn't, wasn't quite it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. 16 birdies is... Two behind Brooks Kepka and Adrian Moronk. Uh, Adrian Moronk shot Whoa. shot six over and still made eighteen birdies, which is sweet. Um, that is sick. Yeah, yeah. Rory made fourteen bogeys, no doubles. Add it all up, two under par. Um, yeah, I wasn't disappointed in anything from him this week. I was I was actually thrilled when he came out. I was like, Look, I'm just not gonna get into the lift stuff anymore. And maybe that makes me the yes. this is the Rory sympathizer for the moment, um, because online I think people are, were like good riddance, yeah. Like you don't get to talk about like I think people were getting annoyed at Rory's quotes leading the day rather than his golf, and I think Rory started to realize that. For w- whether it's right or wrong, like I I think he played an immensely important role in the last year. And that was going to require all these quotes. And if people just got fatigued by them, like that's on you. Um, these things were necessary. So I would say kudos to him for realizing when he needed to take a step back. This course did seem to make really, really good sense for him. If you started a new major championship at Oak Hill tomorrow, yeah, you'd have Brooks Kepka atop your list, but like you'd for sure feel confident rolling out the balls again and saying, hey, Rory, can you go win me one? Um, so he's getting tighter. Things are getting dialed. Um, I think it's just funny. It's almost like you almost would rather him just finish like 30th in a major and be like, yeah, you know, I didn't have it that <laughs> week. Cause his, his visual cues, his verbal cues were all, no, I don't really have it this week. When he kind of turned his first round around right on the 11th hole, I think it was, or no, his second hole, excuse me, maybe 11th of his day, when he putted for in for a miraculous par from off the green, and um, the ball drops in. It's the first round. You've got uh, about 60 holes left of golf, and he's so sluggish. He's like, oh, God, you know, he's giving this mopey Eeyore kind of look. That's kind of what he gave us at different points of the week, um, and his mood was jumping up every single day but um yeah. sometimes you almost would rather like if it's just not going to be there for him just you know the the back door top 10 um almost makes the questions just kind of ring a little bit louder each time um the wikipedia no page. you're I mean you're right <laughs> to call that out that that moment especially because at that point it was like whoa this dude is not just getting off to a slow start like is he gonna play his way out of the tournament is he going to play his way to a missed cut on day one is he going to make double here go to four over etc etc instead the fact that he was what i guess after he birdied number 10 he was under par for the day he was you know probably still four or five back but on the back nine there was a thought that hey if this guy gets hot through this uh closing stretch he's going to be in the mix that's encouraging. I totally hear what you're saying because I think it's simpler if he just has a week, a dud week like John Rahm had. Scrapes by, makes the cut, is never a factor on the weekend. In some ways, that would invite less scrutiny than this. Yeah. Um, but this is still more good news than bad news. I liked the way he grinded it out on Friday and Saturday and you know didn't get everything out of his round, but certainly didn't let them get away from him it's just yeah he doesn't have he doesn't have quite the command of the ball that it seems like he needs yeah but that's pro golf right i think don't we all (laughs) uh all right so moving on to b d c mr b a d mr bryson DeChambeau, back on the leaderboard gosh he entered the week at like plus one Plus 11,000 or whatever the odds are, 110 to 1 is what Bryson DeChambeau, 2020 U.S. Open champion, entered this week to win at a course that everyone was comparing to Winged Foot, where he won that U.S. Open. Um, And suddenly he was the first round leader. And it was like, wait, excuse me, what? 
Um, did it feel that surprising on the grounds? I know it felt like a different Bryson. It looked like a different Bryson than what I saw online, but um, were people kind of like, I mean, he had our attention for the first two days, right? Oh, yeah. I think the most significant thing was just how big a deal it felt to Bryson that he played as well as he did on day one. Uh, it felt like he was considering himself back just because he had played that one round in difficult conditions. Yeah, I think there. the key to that was that he he drove it so straight, but he was psyched. He was giddy. He was, you know, he was just on that post good round high. Uh, yeah, he led the field in driving distance, and he was also T9 in driving accuracy for the week, which basically sounds like it would add up to a winning score. Yeah. Didn't quite, but yeah, he, he still got it. The way he managed his golf ball, you know, in that first round in particular, and then hung around the rest of the week it's a reminder that he's really good at golf and there are certain setups like this one, which we can talk about in a second that definitely reward well, that. I mean, this turned into a bombers course, but he, he hit, he was a straight bomber yeah. this week. And, and if you can be a straight bomber, that is obviously the best way to play golf. I think, um, I think we need to just discuss how different he looks and feels and is acting. Um, he looks very different. I felt like his, well, he looks different. He has acknowledged that he needed to drop, um, he needed to drop some of the weight that he put on to be healthier. Um, he was inflamed, uh, because he wasn't eating well and it just wasn't working out for him, which it's, you know, a lot of people predicted like that was not a sustainable thing that he was doing to his body, but he, to, from where I sat, which is, you know, often on my couch, <laughs> kind of watching this stuff, seeing clips on Instagram, seeing you talking to him, he just felt more grounded. He felt like he had lowered his own expectations, and rightfully so. He, he, he literally did it with bad golf last year, but it just felt like he was maybe a little more centered and not trying to push himself out in front of everyone and not trying to get to every single fan that wanted to hear from him. And um, that has to be a little more healthy for a pro golfer. Um, Whether that's what he wants, what he needs, I think he's going to find that out this year. But he seems like he's moving in a slightly different direction than the last time we saw him as a a top golfer in the planet. And that that feels worth acknowledging. No, I think you're you're really onto something there. I think a simple way to think about it was – that Bryson used to really be determined to stand out and make it clear just how different things are that he was doing. And he's, he's always going to be that way to an extent, but now it feels like he is less eager to prove it, I guess. And he's realizing that, yeah, he actually can normalize some things. And the version of himself that he's trying to tap into is the guy that wasn't, trying to gain 50 pounds and wasn't you know trying to prove that that uh the speed revolution was going to change his game and change change everyone else's he still has the benefits now of having gone through all that speed training but he just feels a little older yeah he feels a little more mature he feels like he's settled into his own skin a little bit and probably it's a lot easier to be positive about all that stuff when you're playing well but i think He's gotten humbled. Yeah. I think it's been a tough year for yeah. him. I think he feels more appreciative. I mean, he uh, he has the same agent and he has the same manager. Those are two different people. But this was the first time I really felt him shouting those people out in an interview, uh, which stood out to me. He shouted out Connor, who has been his faithful friend, longtime friend from his SMU days. Um, and... When he was asked, I believe after the first round, just kind of like, you know, what's different about right now? And what have you been through? What has this whole journey been like? He shouted those people out. And it just didn't seem like something that he was really doing by name um, during the peak of his powers. And so I do think he's appreciative now. He has a new caddy. um, And, you know, his father passed away uh, in November. And I think that 
I'm not trying to I can't take too many liberties to know exactly what that meant to Bryson, but I I think it rocked him a little bit. And this live golf existence for him has taken him from being a pip <laughs> like number 5 on the pip list, right? One of the most impactful players in the pro golf world to a little bit more of a backseat like look you need to make these franchises home you need to grow these extra social channels you need to work really hard to create our content um and it's just made him uh yeah i don't know if grounded's the right term or not but it just feels different and it gosh it feels healthier so um I guess appreciative is probably a term because he's been through some shit. He's a guy that has always cared a lot about being liked and joining Liv has exposed him to a lot of people that don't agree with his decision and probably say some some pretty mean things to him. So I think there's been a lot to confront and he played good golf. All right. Um, I think the last person that I would like to talk to you about is Phil Mickelson. He had yep. an interesting week. Um, he did not do pre-tournament press conferences of any sort, I don't believe. Uh, kind of avoided the media discussion, tried to let his game talk. Let his game talk to the extent that he made the cut, um, which eventually forces you in front of the media, then took the opportunity to say, I know some things that not everybody else knows, <laughs> which is the veiled... Um, vague discussion points that he has been talking about for a while. Um, he's, of course, referencing the Department of Justice investigation into anti-competitive practices of the PGA Tour and the uh, ring of governing bodies in the game. What's kind of weird is like that's now feels normal. <laughs> it feels like that's what we're going to get from Phil until the information comes out. It's just going to be this veiled stuff. Right. And I guess I'm just trying to be more appreciative personally as someone who's covered a lot of the, the legal stuff in the last year and covered a lot of live golf. Um, I'm starting to try to just appreciate what the hell he's doing on the golf course because on some level it's extremely impressive. <laughs> like you, you can take any other, 52 going on a 53 year old pro golfer from the last 30 years and you'd be really impressed at them making the cut in the pga championship at really tough brawny weather laden oak hill but because it's phil and because he's got this other chaos going on in his life i don't think we appreciate that he made the cut this week he did not shoot up the leaderboard on the yeah. weekend but like, damn it, he's actually a very entertaining golfer at this stage of his life, and he will not be winning a lot. He may never win again. I have a hard time believing that he won't win again, um, especially on the smaller tour that he plays on. But, damn it, it is. I've been very entertained watching him try to just flag irons and carve something out of this mid-50-year-old body that he's got. And uh, are you entertained as, as much as I seem to be? I think I think that he finished a shot behind Dustin Johnson and Max Homa. Yeah, that's sick. You know, maybe another shot another shot behind John Rahm. <laughs> he beat Matt Fitzpatrick, beat Ricky Fowler, beat Billy Horschel. Like he's doing it and it's not necessarily on a course that you would think would suit him. Nope. It's clear he is dialed in on these majors also. I think that he has something extra to prove here. Yeah, I was there for his post-round scrum today with reporters, which it felt a little bit like that was his his way of saying, hey, you can't say I never talked to you guys. <laughs> but in the process of being in that scrum, it's like he's not really saying anything. He's just sort of saying, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I can't say. Yeah. Which is, that's, golfers love this. Tiger loves to do annoying. this. Even... Even Brooks was doing this. Like you guys, you guys have no idea what I experienced. It's like, well, you could, you could just tell us. Yeah, you could try to let us in. Anyway, besides the point. Um, yeah, I think that Phil. I think Phil would do well to really sit down with someone, maybe one person on this podcast. And just both of have us. a discussion about some stuff and guest. just kind of air out air out what he thinks because it's clear that he feels like 
He tried to change things from within on the PGA Tour, and he feels sort of validated, vindicated by some of the stuff that has happened since. He thinks that there's nefarious behavior. I think that, uh, you know, there's probably another side to that, and we haven't fully heard either side. So, um, yeah, as always with Phil, worth watching. Loved Oak Hill, though. It was very complimentary of the tournament. Yeah, let's move on to that then. Um, from Phil to Oak Hill. Phil loved it. Did you love it? Yeah, I really did. The crowds were so good. There's a there's a mud pit situation that they have to get sorted because, oh my goodness, just you know, just I'll at throw up a this golf course. This, but uh, no, I, feel like I mean this, this is, is happening. something that's happened elsewhere. Yeah. But at at these major tournaments that host like thirty thousand people a day. Uh, if they get any rain, I mean, it happened at Augusta National this year. It just becomes this mud pit. There's so much traction, foot foot uh, traffic. I think here maybe it's maybe it's the old school nature of the place where the the grounds are not quite the corridors aren't quite as wide as they are at Augusta. It was like <laughs> when I say mud pit, I mean like pits of mud, like people going down, ruining their days. Like there, did you have any slip anyway, ups? Anyway, that that's no, because see, I'm I'm so spoiled. I can mostly walk on the inside of these ropes where there are no mud pits. It's just beautiful green grass. Um, Oak Hill was great. It walked the tightrope all week between challenging and uh, whatever, embarrassing or making players complain or something like that. I mean, the winning score. Being right in that single-digit under par thing is awesome. Having only 11 guys under par, awesome. Like I love it when even par is a score that has some substance to it, mm-hmm. has some integrity. Um, so, yeah, big props for Oak Hill. I think, look, I'm interested to hear more of the conversation of, yeah, this just favored bombers you know you see someone like cam davis on there uh you see yeah these guys that just hit it pretty far but i don't know whatever hitting it far is part of the deal and it's uh it's part of the pga's identity at least in modern times that it is going to be a slightly different version of the u.s open and you know if you you think it was only bombers then you probably weren't watching michael block because that's not it's not his vibe so yeah i uh i'm interested to think more about oak hill in the coming days but my general review is the fans were awesome the atmosphere was incredible the golf course showed out how you want and um i i understand if people if the the long rough thing is not some people's cup of tea but i i I enjoyed it. I found it funny that the golf course, we do this this game. Like when you go to a, a major championship venue we haven't been to in a while or haven't been to ever, we're like, well, what, what course does this remind you of? And the ones that were yep. being brought up were U.S. Open courses. They were not PGA courses. There was nobody saying like, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of like Southern Hills or it's kind of like Belle Reve or, or whatever, Whistling Straits, Hazeltine. Um, they were saying, no, this feels like uh, – winged foot this feels like i think michael block said like the uh um, if oakmont and beth page had a baby that that's what this would be um and it feels what, yeah. it, what i think beth page was interesting joel damon threw in um brookline yeah. as a comp which US i thought was courses. was a really intriguing one that, that may be an indictment of pga host sites yeah as much as anything sure else. more memorable more oh, attention <laughs> easier to kind of summon to your mind i mean beth page is a pga site but yeah i think that would be my explanation as much as anything uh, the one thing that i loved and this is a pretty golf nerdy thing is i was watching a lot of espn plus um, broadcasts and they just did these graphics so well as the tournament progressed where it's like hey here is our digital version of this green and that's where we put the Thursday pin. And here's how different the Friday pin is. And Saturday's pin, it's tucked back here. And Sunday's pin, it's right on this ridge. And you just see this green that it's like, okay, yeah, this is a different golf hole every single day. 
They did it with the 14th hole really well. This drivable, only if you can hit a very good drive type of par four. And uh, it just clearly played differently and similarly every single day in different ways. And that, to me, if you can do that with many holes on a golf course, that's a major championship. None of these holes are easy every single day. And that's what I, I just thought that they were this course in, in its restored fashion lived up to that uh, ideal for me. So I really like that. Lived up, Sean. <laughs> lived up. Uh, any um, other thoughts? Well, Sean, my thoughts are that I've moved to the den over here for better Wi-Fi and I didn't bring my charger. So I'm now about to, my battery's about to die. I head to the airport in about three hours. Mm. And uh, I feel... You want to just let it ride and keep home, talking to also, you tonight? Maybe it probably would keep me awake, uh, but I'd have to find an outlet. So my, my thoughts are, uh, thanks to the zonies that kind of flagged me down this week, said that there were listeners. We appreciate you guys. Um, no, it was just fun. It was a fun week. We missed you out here. I will say there was some good content coming from the golf.com squad. There were some fun YouTube videos being made and, uh, yeah, you know, it's just it's fun to have these events feel big and feel like they're living up to their billing. And sure, there's questions about the PGA Championship's identity and stuff. And you can tell even based on our discussion today, when a tournament is this good, those just don't come up. Yes. Yeah. This, Sean, felt major. <laughs> and uh, that's what I've got for you. Uh, that's sufficient. Um, we'll be here a week from now. The last thing I can say is, you know, friends of mine, just please stop getting married on major championship weekends. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs>